Great. Thank you very much, Matty. Let's pray, shall we, as we look at God's word together tonight. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and his words, which we as those that follow him believe to be the words of life itself. May his words speak to our hearts and transform our lives in his righteousness now and always. Amen. So, Jesus talked about the law and the prophets, uh, Old Testament. Things like you can eat beef and lamb, but not pork and prawns. Uh, You should never wear clothing made from two different kinds of fabric. The blood of bulls and goats will make atonement for your sins. Uh, These are all just examples of some of the law's commands in the Old Testament. And it raises the question, um, I've put there, who's afraid of the Old Testament? Uh, Probably the answer is many of us are either baffled by some of these commands, uh, they seem a bit arbitrary, they seem very out of date, uh, or perhaps intimidated by it. And we don't very often turn back earlier than Matthew's Gospel into the Old Testament. And here we are in the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus' teaching on what it looks like to be a follower of his, a disciple. And he's already described that in the first 16 verses. The blessing sayings in the first 12, and then we saw the salt and the light sayings last time. And he's giving, it seems in the summer, a new teaching for a new community of his followers. And it asks, begs the question, is he, by his teaching, replacing the teaching, the commands of the Old Testament. What's he saying about the Old Testament if he's giving this new teaching for his followers? Uh, And the answers he gives to that question, what's Jesus saying about the Old Testament, are really here in these verses that Matthew just read for us. He gives just a small number of principles of how he thinks about the Old Testament law, how we're to relate to it, that are going to be very important in the rest of the sermon, right through, not my sermon, his sermon, through to the end of chapter 7. He's going to show us what this looks like in much more detail, practically, next week and thereafter. So that's partly a plea to say, keep coming. It's going to get very, very interesting and very practical. Uh, But it's partly just to say, these principles tonight are important. If we get these in our heads as right as we can, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount will make much more sense to us. So, tonight, principles from Jesus of how he and we relate to the Old Testament, as we call it, the Law and the Prophets. And we're going to see what Jesus says, first of all, about himself and the law. I've got two things we're going to see there, two principles. That's verses 17 and 18. And then we're going to finish by looking at what he says about us and the law and the commandments in verses 19 and 20. So two principles to do with Jesus, first of all. Here's the first one. Jesus upholds the law. Jesus upholds the law. This is verses 17 and 18. So he says in verse 17, do not think, just look down at that, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, the law here means the first five books of the Old Testament. That was a, a Jewish, still is a Jewish way of talking about the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Within those 
five books, especially in Exodus, Leviticus, are many commandments, supremely the Ten Commandments, which are Exodus 20. They're actually on the wall over there in the church as well by those windows. The prophets means the rest of the Old Testament. So the history books and what we call the prophets, Isaiah, uh, Psalms, and so on. They have many prophecies pointing to Jesus, as you might be aware already, but they do also reinforce the commandments of the first five books. The covenant, as it's called, God's relationship with his people through his regulations and commands. The prophets came and said, uh, we are being called by God back to those we've broken and we've been called back to keep his commandments before it's too late. So the law and the prophets, and Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish them. And you think, well, if he's having to say that, someone presumably is thinking that he's come to do exactly that, that he has come to abolish them, or they wouldn't be saying it. He wouldn't have to say it himself. Now, we'll see in Matthew's Gospel, there are these a group of the religious leaders, so they were like the clergy of their day, really, the, the ministers, called Pharisees. And the word literally means separatists. And they're called that probably because they saw themselves as being set apart uh, to teach and keep the law of the Old Testament and be separate from particularly the kind of bad people who didn't. Uh, the sinners, as they called them, uh, the, the lawbreakers, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the poor, the sick. And here they are, we can almost be certain, I think, they are saying, this Jesus, he's teaching a new way. He's breaking the law, and he's teaching others to do the same. And Jesus has to defend himself and say, no, I haven't come to abolish. In fact, I've come to uphold the law. The interesting thing for us is that there have always been Christians going right back to the first century who did see Jesus as being about grace and the Old Testament as about law. And that became the kind of mantra, uh, Jesus, faith, that's all about grace, Old Testament, all about law. After all, we, we say there's a verse in John's Gospel where John says that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So you can see where the temptation comes to say, oh, Jesus clearly came to abolish the law. There was even a man called Marcion in the early church who was so convinced that the Jewish law was a bad thing, we should leave it behind in the grace of Christ, he took a penknife to the Bible and he, he cut out the Old Testament. He said, we just want the New. And he cut out everything in the New Testament that referred to the Old Testament, which I suspect didn't leave very much, actually. But Jesus is very clear. He says, I have not come to abolish the law. We can't just take a penknife to the Old Testament. He underlines it, verse 18, Truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, that almost certainly means the new creation when he returns, not the smallest letter or least stroke of a pen, those are like, like the, the smallest strokes in the Hebrew Bible, will by any means disappear from the law. Very strong language, isn't it? Any means disappear from the law until everything's accomplished. Now, Paul says a similar thing, actually, in Romans uh, chapter 3. Paul's accused sometimes of um, teaching grace, not law. But he says, actually, in Romans 3.31, we don't nullify the law through our faith. Rather, we uphold it. 
So law and faith, law and grace go together, actually. They connect with each other. Ask me a bit more if you want to later how, but Jesus upholds the law. He doesn't abolish it. You can't cross a letter I out from the Old Testament without breaking the law, says Jesus. And you've lost everything if you do that. You can't take out a single stroke of a pen. Jesus is not, to summarize, revoking or revising or rejecting or replacing the Old Testament law. He's not. He's very clear. I have not come to abolish the law. Now, this is actually really important for us today because it is at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. To be what we call a disciple. It can't be simply a disciple, someone who says, I love Jesus and that's it. Because Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law. In some way we'll explore, the law is still profoundly relevant for us. Now, there's a nice saying around, we hear this in church circles sometimes. It sounds attractive at first. Christians say, don't they, faith is about relationship with God, not about rules. Uh, Religion rules versus faith, relationship with God. Now, there's a half-truth there. It is clearly about a relationship with God. But in its fullness, that sentence contradicts what Jesus says, doesn't it? He says, I've not come to abolish the law. Okay, faith is not about man-made rules. That is important. But it's not about rejecting God's rules. They are supremely important. So the law of the Old Testament is hugely important to us as we follow Christ, if we're Christians, also to our culture. It's influenced our culture over the centuries in this, what was a Christian country, in our laws and so on the Ten Commandments especially. But the world today is saying, isn't it, that the Old Testament, all that law, religion stuff, that's outdated. Uh, In fact, it's even, it's imprisoning, it's dangerous, it's primitive. We should replace it, people say, with with our modern liberal freedom in which we we do what we feel right. We express ourselves. Get rid of Genesis, get rid of Leviticus with all their stuff about the sanctity of life and marriage and so on. But Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law. We cannot just throw it away. I haven't come even to revise the law, he says. And we today do so at our peril, therefore. So that's the kind of first thing, first principle from Jesus. He does not abolish the law. He upholds it. Here's the second thing. Same verse 17. Jesus fulfills the law. He says, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it that's verse 17 what does he mean by I've come to fulfill the law there are theories about this it's quite a complicated verse this one Uh, some of the writers say this is the hardest verse in the bible to understand it's a very complex verse but some say he means um, I have come to fulfill meaning I've come to confirm it to kind of validate it to show it's true Some say it's similar, really, but some say he's come to extend it to show deeper meanings in it than we've seen before. Or he's come to simply to deepen it, to intensify what it means to keep the law. So he will say, won't he? Uh, You heard it was said, don't murder. I say, don't hate your brother in your heart. He intensifies it. Some truth in those, I'm quite sure, but actually, 
I think fulfilling the law. Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law. That word in the Bible almost always means not filling something in where it's lacking, but fulfilling, meaning bringing to reality what it points to. I've come to fulfill the law, to reveal and to complete in some way what the Old Testament law is pointing to. The contrast, you see, in Jesus' phrase there, it's not between abolishing and extending. I haven't come to abolish it, but to make it more difficult for you. He says, I've come not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. What's he mean by that? Well, he does say, doesn't he, that the, the, the law will remain as long as heaven and earth remain till the new creation. But he's not necessarily saying the meaning of the law for us as believers stays as it was before he came. He's come to fulfill something. Not simply, you see, another Jewish teacher saying, here's the law, you had it before, let's keep keeping it, or trying to. He's not just, as liberal people would say, a liberal theologian, he came to teach us love and that's all. Clearly his coming is much more significant than just another teacher. He is fulfilling the law in a way that no one had claimed to before. He's making a radical difference to the law. Paul in Romans again, chapter 10, verse 4 says, Christ is the end of the law, not meaning that's it, throw it away, but meaning the culmination, the target, the goal that it's pointing to. That must be what he means by fulfilling it, the culmination of it. Well, a number of ways that Jesus, I think, does that. Just we're going to look at four of them very quickly. First one, he fulfills the law by his teaching and his teaching. He shows that, we're going to see this next week, how to truly apply the law of God in our hearts is what he's going to teach. Where the Pharisees had chained the law with their ways of interpreting it, which were quite complicated, Jesus is going to set the law free to challenge and change us. He fulfills the law in his life. This is critical. He's the first person in the human race fully to obey God's law perfectly. The first person that ever did that. And to delight in doing so. Not even a burden to him, a joy. Where others worship self, Jesus loves the Father. Where others love themselves, he loves his enemies. So Psalm 40, verse 8, the psalm writer, uh, perhaps David originally, I delight to do your will, my God, he says. Your law is in my heart. Jesus, I'm quite sure, prayed that prayer and meant every single syllable of it. He fulfills the law in his life. He delights to do so. Thirdly, he fulfills the law in his death. So Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin are death. That's going back to the Old Testament principle where, according to the law of God, if we fall short of God's standards, if we sin, the ultimate punishment, the penalty of that, is death. That's why Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden of God's presence back in Genesis 3. The wages of sin is death. That's the way the law works. But Jesus came in his his death and life to pay that price for us. He's taken the death that was ours that was owed to us under the law so that we could be set free from death itself law has been satisfied 
God's not shoving sin under the carpet as if it doesn't matter to him, because it does, but he's also no longer punishing you and me that we went astray. In his death, Christ fulfills the law. The righteous one suffers, not for his law-breaking, but for ours. Now, from quite early on, and some would say from within the Bible, Christian teaching has thought about the laws of the Old Testament, and there are many of them, under three categories or, or distinct kinds of law. And I think this is quite helpful to see because it helps us understand why do we seem to keep some Old Testament law today, like do not murder, do not commit adultery, uh, why are we still called to live, but not other ones, like, as I mentioned earlier, um, prawn cocktail crisps which I would argue are fine for Christians to eat, at least on religious grounds. Um, health is another matter. So Christians have saw these three different kinds of laws, moral laws or commandments, like especially the Ten Commandments, still binding, I'm going to argue. Secondly, ceremonial laws or patterns, like the festivals of Passover, of Atonement, that point ahead to Christ, patterns pointing to Christ. Thirdly, civil laws or judgments. So, you know, if, if your neighbour steals your donkey, they should make reparation by giving you a donkey in return or giving you another donkey instead. Now, two of these, the second two, ceremonial laws, civil laws, are fulfilled by Jesus, many Christians, biblical teachers would say, and I think this is right, so as not to require us still to live under them ourselves as believers today. He's fulfilled them in the sense that they're done, they're finished. The ceremonial law, for instance, regulations for festivals, for sacrifices for sin, has been fulfilled in the death of Christ. Hebrews 10, uh, verses 10 and 18 say that Christ has died once for all as our sacrifice. And it says in Hebrews 10, no further sacrifice for sins is needed. All those centuries of the Jewish people offering sacrifices for sins day by day, week by week, and at the Day of Atonement each year, Hebrews says, Christ has done that. He's fulfilled it. They pointed to his death. He's died once for all. He needn't die again. We needn't keep offering sacrifices. He declared all foods clean, Mark says in chapter 7, verse 19 meaning that because the, the purity of God's people before him rests upon the purity of Christ, not the food laws that we keep, what we do and what we don't eat, pork, prawn cocktail crisps are now, as it were, on the menu for a believer, if we wish them to be. So that's ceremonial. And then civil judgments, just quickly, uh, punishing crime. That's particularly meaning. Those commands were given to the nation of Israel when the nation was both, as it were, a, a, a kingdom under God, but also a, a national state needing its own civil laws. Christ has come, has opened the kingdom to all, Jew and Gentile alike, and so God's people are now a spiritual kingdom, a holy nation, and as it were, we've handed the civil government to our national governments. So those two, fulfilled by Christ. We'll come back in a second to the third, the moral commandments, which are fulfilled in a different way, as we'll see. And that is in 
this is the fourth of our headings, in his followers. So in his teaching, his life, his death, in his followers, Christ fulfills the law. Especially this means the Ten Commandments and what it means to love God and love neighbor today. In Romans 8, chapter 2, sorry, Romans 8, verse 2 to 4, Paul says, what the law, the old covenant, the commandments were powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, that just means our human nature, our sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of flesh, as a human being, to be a sinner offering for us. And so he condemned sin in the flesh, in human beings, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. It's an amazing phrase. Slightly difficult thing to get your head around this this verse, isn't it? See what he's saying there. The problem of disobedience that you and I break God's law, we fall short, we sin, it's not the law's fault that we do that. The law's too difficult. It's my heart's fault. And now that Christ has died to take my punishment, having lived a perfect life and risen again, he's given a new heart to his followers by his spirit so that now he might fulfill his commandments in our lives. That he might equip us, empower us to begin to live a new way so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. God promised the same in Jeremiah 31, 34, uh, where God promised years before Jesus, I will put my law in their minds, so not on tablets of stone, not even on paper, in our minds, and write them on their hearts. We, as Christians, begin to live God's way to keep the commands because he's writing his laws in our hearts. We'll come back to uh, just how that works in a second. It's a difficult thing to get ahead around. I'm conscious of that. Let's try and be a little bit more direct for us now with our third point, the last one. Jesus, we've seen, upholds the law. He fulfills the law in those different ways. He also now, for us, commands us to practice and teach obedience. So if you like, to keep the law. But he uses those words, doesn't he? Who uh, practices and teaches others to do the same thing. In verse 19. Now he will get more practical as I keep saying. Next week from verse 21 onwards. He'll apply what it means. For us to practice and teach what he says. And his commandment here. He seems to be meaning not just the ten commandments. But his own teaching that's going to follow. That's all the commands. That he's giving us. But can you see this is important. Verse 19. Therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands. And teaches us to do the same. Will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands, Old Testament, Jesus' teaching together, will be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's a great promise, isn't it? If only you and I can do this, practice and teach these things. See what he's saying? The, The order of seating the kingdom, supremely he means, doesn't he, what we call heaven, the new creation. The order of seating there will not be according to how often you or I attended church, but how fully and closely you and I attended to the words of Jesus, practicing and teaching his commands. That's really striking, isn't it? That's what a disciple really is. Uh, Obeying these commands of Jesus, applying 
the law of God in our lives today, it's not just even desirable, it's actually life and death, verse 20. Life and death, unless your righteousness, these words don't terrify you, they do terrify me, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teach the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. What's he mean there? Well, the Pharisees lived and taught God's law with with considerable dedication and rigor. Um, They added 248 positive regulations to the commandments of Exodus and Leviticus, 365 negative prohibitions. That's a lot of books of notes, mustn't they? So, for instance, to avoid murdering someone, they would say, don't carry a knife in your car or go driving in rush hour traffic because either of those may prompt you to kill someone in an act of road rage. That's the kind of way that their commandments worked. Um, Jesus criticized this very harshly. He said, you're focusing on small things like giving away a tenth of your herbs rather than the big things like loving God and humility and mercy. And the problem is, he says, that their rules are, they're all about meeting the minimum requirements that God seems to want rather than maximizing how much we can love God as we live our lives. It's a bit like you're given an essay for A-level and you're told what the kind of pass mark is and what the amount of work is you're expected to do and and you you do the word count and you just do one word more than the minimum. You don't push the boat out with the amount of work you do. You don't read around the topic. You just kind of find one book that summarizes it for you and you just copy that in because you think, well, that's the minimum to pass rather than thinking, oh, this is a fantastic opportunity to learn, what a great question, I'm going to really throw myself into this and find out all I can, talk to people, read everything I can, and do the best I can with this, not just to please the teacher, but because I'm going to learn through this. And Jesus is saying the Pharisees, they, they've got the minimal approach. The law actually calls for the maximal approach. How can I honour you as rich as possible, Lord, in keeping this command? We are to be more righteous, he says, than the Pharisees. Now, he's not saying we have to be perfect to be saved. We don't. Christ has saved us. He's not saying that we're saved by the amount of good things we do. He's not saying that. But he is saying that we are to show a righteousness that's deeper than the Pharisees. An obedience to Christ that's, I've tried to sum it up in in these ways, it's an obedience that's inward, not outward in origin comes from the heart, from the spirit and the word in me. That's maximal, not minimal in nature. How can I most honour God in this, not how can I get away with it? And that's moral primarily, not just ritual in its nature. This is about how I can live in a relationship with others and with God and with the world, not just going through motions. Some of our family are um, pretty mad on steam trains, I'm among them, actually. Now, to make a train run from Sheringham to Weybourne by steam, you need what? Thank you, coal and fire. You do. Uh, Fuel. But actually, you also need tracks, don't you, for your train to stop the train heading out of Sheringham at high speed and careering down the fields and over the beach into the sea. You need tracks. And... Jesus commands us to follow the guidance of the scriptures, rather like rail tracks, 
We've got the fuel of the Spirit, the fuel of the Word in us, but we need the tracks of the commandment as well. So I kind of summarize it like this. Through Christ and what he's done, because he fulfills the law in us, he's done it all for us, and he continues by his spirit to do it in us, we are free now as Christians to live in obedience. We are free to live in obedience. But we're not free from obedience. We're free for obedience, but not from obedience. Jesus says in Matthew 28, verse 20, at the end of Matthew's gospel, go and make disciples, baptize baptize them in my name, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. Again, it's back to the thing about not one letter, not one stroke. Obey everything I've commanded. That's by grace, it's by spirit, it's through the word, but it's obedience. So here are two general ways I think that these principles matter for us today. Uh, we'll look much more in depth the coming weeks, but here's two general principles uh, for us. They are a challenge, aren't they? Jesus upholding the law, calling me to obey, is a challenge. I can't escape that. Uh, yes, I need to read the Old Testament. If you go home and try Exodus tonight, read it with discernment, asking which have been fulfilled in Christ and no longer therefore binding on me, the ceremonial things, and which actually are still a call to me to live out from my heart. The Ten Commandments in particular. Do I get my moral guidance from the media, from my instincts inside me, what I feel just seems right to me, or do I go back to the Scriptures and ask, Lord, what would you have me do? Because that's where the train tracks That's where safety lies. Do I read the scriptures as much as I can each day so that I'm becoming familiar with what the commands of Jesus look like that I can then practice and teach them in my small group, in my one-to-one, so on. So they are a challenge. They are. But they're also good news. Jesus' words are good news for me, for those that I share them with as well. Because, you see, the law is a wonderful gift. It leads me to repentance. It points me to Christ, to one that can fulfill it when I never could. But it also leads me to righteousness. Because once he begins by faith to fulfill his law in my life, to work out his love from a renewed heart, I find that I not only need the righteousness of Jesus, but he begins to put it in me. That hymn, I put the quote at the top of the service sheet, famous hymn, he died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good. I can't make myself good. Uh, I'm a work in progress. But he died not just to pay the price for the past, but to change the present and the future, to make us good. I have a law-keeping saviour whose righteousness is at work in me. I've got a loving saviour who paid the righteous cost of my sin with his life. And I've got a life-changing saviour who by his spirit at at work in me direct my heart and lead me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Let's pray.
Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Lord, we've already confessed that we fall short of your commands and we so need your grace to atone for us, but also to make our hearts new. But in those promises that you've made in the scriptures, we trust that as you make us new, you will fulfill all your purpose in us. Give us new hearts of love, of humility, of patience, of joy, of peacemaking. And may our lives point to your life. May your law be fulfilled in us as we give ourselves to your glory and by your grace learn what it is to live out your commands. In Jesus' name, amen.